Now ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Yes. Let's make sacred pact. I promise teach karate. That's my part. You promise learn. I say you do. No question. Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. Wax on, wax off. Breathe in through nose, out the mouth. Wax on, wax off. Don't forget to breathe. Very important. Wax on, wax off. Hello, podcast listeners. This is another edition of the Goldberg Long Pedoritz podcast, affectionately known by some as Glop. Sadly, we have to work on that. I'm not happy with that. I am Rob Long, editor of and co-founder of Ricochet.com. I am on the line, as always, with Jonah Goldberg, author, pundit, syndicated columnist in Washington, D.C. Jonah, how are you? I am all right. <laughs> wow, that was very forceful. <laughs> I, I think I, I want, I'm into expressing mediocrity and banality with enthusiasm. <laughs> well, that's, hey, that's my job. I work in television. Um, and on the line with us, as usual, uh, is uh, uh, editor of Commentary Magazine, among uh, many other things, and um, uh, suffering from some kind of laryngitis thing, John Pedora's in New York City. John, how are you? I'm, uh, I'm okay. I, uh, I'm trying to do my best Margaret Sullivan impression and if anybody on earth gets that joke uh you are too too old old. (laughs) to be listening to a podcast if anybody on earth gets that joke die already um i was gonna say you sound like demi moore but you know that works oh demi moore who's that (laughs) who's that you you young whippers i don't know these that's some kind of alt comedy routine right (laughs) oh i'm sorry demi moore you know who she is (laughs) <laughs> uh, that's better. That's better. That makes them better. Um, uh, is, is it a cold? Is it laryngitis? Did you get it from screaming, or did you, would you uh, walk out I, of the, in for, the? For once, for once, I did not get hoarse from screaming from at my children, which is ordinarily the way I get hoarse. No, I, uh, I it's some kind of a cold or a you know a flu or something. But do you? I mean, but, well, uh, well, I feel well, I feel that it makes me you know sexier and also. You know, I, I understand sort of like the Alec Baldwin style of acting that, you know, if you whisper, people really pay a lot more attention to you. That's true. That's true. That is true. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. Right. Although I had to say that if you whisper, if you have a throat problem and uh, a voice problem and you whisper, apparently it's worse. It sounds – it feels better, but it's actually worse. So, hey, John, through gritted teeth, can you say, get your filthy hands off me, you damn dirty ape? <laughs> I I. I could, but not as well as, oh, okay. the, as the late and great Charles. Get Mast. your filthy hands off me! <laughs> good damn dirty ape. <laughs> See, that sounds good. <laughs> that sounds pretty good, actually. Thank you. You're there. You are there. I, um, so I should say before we get too deeply into the meat of our podcast. Although, I, how could we be deeper? Um, this show is brought to you by Audible.com, the home for audio content on the internet. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it with over one hundred thousand titles and virtually every genre. You'll find what you're looking for. Get a free audio book and a thirty day trial today by signing up at www.audiblepodcast.com forward slash Glop, G L O P. Unfortunately, actually, we should uh, we got to change that. That seems crazy. slash glop All right. Well, uh, I actually do listen to a lot of books on tape, and and um, and Audible is the best. Uh, books on tape is like that's another weird thing old people say, right? Books on tape. Yes, yeah, like I got a book on tape. I got that book on tape. Yeah, it's like I, saying I, it's like saying I dialed you know I dialed the phone. Yeah. yeah. When yeah. has anyone? I mean, it's been thirty years since anyone dialed a phone. I uh I do I do a little uh, every now and then when I'm um in the office when I'm joking around with the writers I do an impression of an old comedy writer uh who always says the same thing I wrote sixty two Mister Ed's and I can't get a meeting <laughs> and it, it, you know it always gets laughs from a certain a certain age group but there's also the younger writers like they'll, they'll turn to each other and say what's a Mister Ed. <laughs> 
<laughs> so it is a little bit about the getting old. Now and and now even before we get into the to think to think of the loss of our cultural patrimony that young people today are not aware of Mr. Ed. Next you'll, next you'll tell me, next you'll tell me that they look blank at references to my mother, the car. <laughs> they, where's our culture going, John? What happened to it? I, this well, is, that's the canon. This, this is, <laughs> we are lost. We are yeah. lost, my friends. Pull up the ladder behind you for Let you know me, what what is left. Where's Let Edie Hirsch? Yes, that's right. <laughs> Alan Bloom needs to be here. The very oh, Alan Young. Alan Young needs to be here. Right. I um, I, I I I don't know if I mentioned this on the last podcast. I, I look, I'm not trying to put off the podcast meat, which is okay. a very very evocative phrase. Um, but uh. Um, it's kind of sounds like the kind of thing you say about someone who's really not ready for television when they walk into a room. Hey, look at the podcast meat. Um, but um, podcast meat. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I saw I learned something the other week. I can't, again, I might have mentioned this, but um, it depressed me so much that Ralph Macchio sure. is now as old as Mr. Miyagi was when the Karate Kid came out. Yeah, that is the, yeah, one of the most depressing facts. <laughs> you just don't get depressing. you just don't get any yeah. any more depressing than that. <laughs> that I, Syria, North I, Korea, nothing. No, Ralph Macchio. No, those aren't depressing. Old. Those are evil, or they're horrible, or they're world changing. Well, while we're on the, the topic notion. of Mr. Miyagi, which I know we are, we now we are, I should say that. You know, uh, Pat Morita. It was played by Pat Morita, who was a uh, a comedian, a stand up comic in the sixties. Before yes. he before he became um, for a while, wasn't he the owner of Al's in um, Yes in Happy Days? Yes. Uh, again, you know, everybody under forty is probably not listening. But but in the sixties, he was a uh, he was a comedian, and you know what his his uh, little uh, his comedian's name was. I know, I know. Pat Morita, the hip. He was nip. the hip nip. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and that was considered okay. The hip like nip and he—he's the one who used the word nip. Yeah, he thought it was funny, and, and nobody. There's, uh, yeah, there's an episode of The Odd Couple in which uh, Pat Morita plays the a restaurateur, uh, a Japanese restaurateur in New York. Wait, uh, what? it turns out that he met Felix because he was uh, in the uh, jungle during World War II and they faced off against each other in the in the, in the jungle. Are you kidding? Uh, during World War II. Oh, that yeah, was yeah, an, yeah. oh yeah. Yeah. See, I to, to me that seems bananas that we had a culture once that was now I mean we're now talking uh forty years ago, but we're only talking twenty five years after the war. Twenty five years after the bombing of Hiroshima. Yeah. We were making jokes on American television about our former combatants and everybody's laughing and everybody's cool with it. And now that just seems like no one would be cool with it. It's like we've gone backwards. 40 years later, we are actually not any more cool or tolerant or whatever those words are. We're actually that much more sensitive. You know, it's interesting. If you go back and you watch some of Pat Morita's stand-up, which for some reason I did about a year ago, um, Wait a minute! <laughs> what? 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 What horrible stomach bug did you have? <laughs> and you went through every YouTube video except for that. I wonder. No, I, I, someone sent me something. I can't remember why I was watching it, but it, it's it's sort of culturally interesting in that, other than the hip nip part, is that he he <laughs> um, his jokes in 1970s California were all about Japanese landscapers and Japanese gardeners. Which today are all the jokes about Hispanic landscapers and, and Hispanic gardeners, but it was the same. It was the same kinds of jokes, but back then the Japanese immigrants had those kinds of jobs, which is kind of you know, kind of interesting, I think. Yeah, well, you know, back then, uh, even before then, they were the gardeners for for almost twenty thirty years in Cal- in California. There are still. Uh, places in California, where a place in LA where you go, that uh, there's a, a street in West LA called Sawtell 
that um, started out being where every Japanese nursery was. There's still there's one old one, very famous one, run by a family, and the family was interned, and they came back, and and uh, I can't quite there's a there's a whole tragic story to it, of course, because of the internment. Uh, but they came back, it's still there, and for some and no one really knows why Sawtell Avenue in uh, West LA has this, but it has it, and. Um, and on Sautel now, it's, it's sort of little Tokyo or sort of little Asia. It's where you get the best – on the west side anyway, outside of uh, Koreatown or Japantown or, or, or uh, Monterey Park where the Chinese people live. Um, it, you get the best sushi. You get the best ramen. You get the best uh, Korean barbecue. You get all, any sort of pan-Asian street. And it all started because uh, in 1920 or 1930 um, – that's where all the nurseries were, and they were all run by Japanese people, who are now, of course, the richest uh, segment of, of of California, which we're not allowed to say because that would suggest that this country is a place still of opportunity and progress. Um, and uh, as we know, uh, that can't possibly be the case because um, because bad things. <laughs> um, uh, if you are just listening to this for the first time and you're wondering how it is that we've decided to waste our time talking about comedians from the 70s. I will let you know this is a, pro, a, prodca- a, bo- a podcast from ricochet.com. If you have not gone to ricochet.com, please do. Ricochet.com is a fast-growing conversation place between and among the center-right. We have great contributors. We've got great members. Everyone joins the conversation. It's a lot of fun. It's very interesting. We have about, I don't know, maybe half a dozen, maybe more podcasts for you to listen to uh, on all different topics. We are launching a couple of new different ways of, uh, of organizing what we do every day. It only works, and this only works if you become a member. If you're listening to this, you are, we assume, uh, somewhat aligned with free market politics, and that's great, and somewhat aligned with center-right politics, and that is even better. Um, we need your support, so please go to ricochet.com and join uh, so that we can keep doing these. Um, and also, if you join ricochet.com, at some point we will do a podcast entirely about the comedian Johnny Yoon. <laughs> who was a who was a Korean Korean yes. comedian? You were uh, laughing. Who I, I think Pat Morita really blazed the trail yeah. that Johnny Yoon walked down after him. He really stood on the shoulders of Pat Morita, the giant. Well, I am to produce his Korean comedy, and now now Johnny Yoon, I believe needs to be given some credit for helping inspire Rob's TBS show Sullivan and Son. Here's what's weird. Which, is a, which makes lots of Korean jokes. All we do. Uh, uh, our star, I don't, it just hit the news last night. We should be on. Our star uh, was in an accident um, over the weekend. Oh, no. We're in production. We, we, we shot three shows. He was in an accident. He broke his jaw. Ah! Yeah, it's not a big fracture, but it's a fra- enough of a fracture that his jaw is wired shut for six weeks. So we have to shut down production, right? Because the guy's got to talk. He's the star of a TV show. You can't do a TV show. And we, you know, we could think, oh my God, couldn't he have just broken a leg? <laughs> you know, a leg I could handle. Selfish bastard. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and he's in good spirits. He's okay. He's a funny guy. So uh, I spent yesterday texting him names of people we're going to hire to replace him. And <laughs> one was Johnny Yoon. Johnny Yoon, I think, would be very. He's a little old. Johnny Yoon, yeah. Johnny uh, Yoon's a little old. And there's another. Uh, there's another Korean. Comic. How about Mickey? How about Mickey Rooney? Because you know he really he does a great job playing Asians. Uh, you know, Mickey Tiffany's. Rooney, Breakfast at Tiffany's. He's many Asians really think that's an accurate and understated performance yeah. by Mickey Rooney. But it, it takes it takes a backseat to Ricardo Montalban's bravura performance as the Japanese crime lord in Hawaii Five O. Oh, that was they- that that was a great that was a truly great. You know what's sad? You know what's really sad about all this? Like clearly, imagine us. Doing a podcast in 1972 or something like that, and you know what we'd be doing? We'd be saying things like, "Whatever happened to Joe Besser?" <laughs> now, what? John, you know, wait, wait, today, people today just don't feel? talk enough about Parkia Carcass. <laughs> Why aren't the Goldbergs still on the air? <laughs> How old are you? 
What you, you, you know, have the problem like, with me is that I'm is that I'm 52, but I'm overly interested in the history of show business. That's what? my problem. So I believe today I've made reference to Margaret Sullivan, Park Your Carcass, <laughs> Johnny Yoon, episodes of The Odd Couple, and you know, well, and I was just the guy who runs just, TBS has the best job. I think the best job in show business because he runs TBS and TNT, and those are like drama comedy channels or comedy drama. So you know, TBS is all comedy and TNT is all drama, and they've got some really very good dramas. And, and I like to think they have some good comedies too. But he also runs TCM, Turner Classic Movies, which you, at a certain point you turn a corner as an adult and you're like, you know what? Screw it. I'm watching Turner Classic, whatever that's on, because it's always better than anything else that's on, even if it's worse. You know what I mean? It's like at least it's, at least it's been around for a while. And I actually find myself pretty much glued to Turner Classic. Uh, and I've, I've watched more old movies in the past two years than – Ever before, which you probably movies you already seen, John. But no, I mean Turner Classic Movies is uh, is is fantastic. But I was just complaining just half an hour ago on Twitter that that there was Jonah again saying, "Oh my God, I just saw a great episode of Justified. It was really fantastic." And I don't understand where you get all this time to watch television. I have no time to watch television. Plus, I think it's now time if we're really going to continue with this with this. Uh, Pop culture nonsense that I know that I know that uh, Jonah is a big fan of Game of Thrones and I really haven't watched Game of Thrones. But so I watched the first episode of Game of Thrones of the third season. Mm-hmm. I've read the books. OK. <laughs> I've read the books of Game of Thrones. I read them last year. Why? You say I, I have too much time on my hands. <laughs> I, read them, I read them. I read them as a kind of dare thing with my sister. Anyway, so I read them. Who can? Who I can waste had more of his- no idea what was going on, and I read the book. La- I read the book that this is based on last year, and I had no idea what was going on. How is it? Po- the only reason that four million people watched Game of Thrones on Sunday night is because they were looking for the naked breasts. That's the only explanation. You can't hear a word of the dialogue. You can't figure out what on earth is happening, where these people are. What their connection is to each other. So, Jonah, as a as a fan of newfangled television, please defend Game of Thrones, the third season, to me. Yeah, I, I, I really don't see it. Look, I mean, I, I have I have always been four square in favor of gratuitous nudity, but um, uh, I should say show. I should say good gratuitous nudity because you know. You know, I'm not. I'm not for Michael Moore all of a sudden expanding yeah. his oof. But <laughs> you, don't um, the, you know, the Game of Thrones starring B. Arthur. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, I saw you tweeting about that. I'm, I'm not sure I get it. I mean, I, I, whether it deviates from the book or not, I have no idea. But they're sort of they're picking up where these characters left off last season, and and I, I think one of the great things of the sort of this golden age of of sort of serial episodic television where you get these long story arcs over an entire season is that the audiences have now been trained to have a certain amount of patience to yeah. see where things are going. And well, I think that's, that's a, that's a great, I mean, like, I mean, I mean, I, I know John, you were a big fan of the Sopranos. There were vastly more, and I think you'll agree with this, vastly more non sequiturs, red herrings, weird cul-de-sacs, in the last couple of seasons of The Sopranos than, than there have been in Game of Thrones. Yeah, but no, but The yeah. Sopranos focused on a central character or two. And right. the problem with Game of Thrones is that there are nine or ten central characters and they are in various locations and their plot lines sort of go on. Yeah, I think I, I mean, I'm, I'm just I'm just I actually, think that, I actually don't agree with you necessarily, Jonathan, that, that we have done that with an audience. I think audiences still want to one thread, whether whether you go around it or not or whether you, you, you deviate from it or not, Soprano style. They still want one thread. I think Game of Thrones is in trouble. I mean, I think that look, the HBO model is simply this. Um, we, we need you to pay us every month. And we need you to make that as easy as possible for you not to think about it every month because that's you know that's ninety percent of all HBO subscribers don't think about it. Well, but I, they, I, isn't that what they, you're trying to do with Ricochet? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> just, you you be, you just let me finish, young man. 
<laughs> um, uh, the idea is like get you to pay every month and get you to use it and let, watch it right every month right that's that's the HBO model um, and and not to look at your bill not to look at your cable bill and not to notice that actually as you mentioned Justified or Breaking Bad or the biggest drama on television today The Walking Dead are all on basic cable you get them if you get cable everybody's got cable so you get them automatically. And if you start to think about that, you're like, well, wait a minute. Is The Walking Dead? I mean, that's the most popular one-hour show in America. It's on basic cable. That is a major event in American media history. It is great for people like you and me. I think, I think you can make a case that it's great for conservatives in general because it shows that competition is the way to getting great stuff. Um, so that's that's so if, if so if you're HBO, you're a little nervous because people are going to start to say, well, wait a minute, I'm not paying anything for great stuff. Why am I paying for HBO? And, and the answer to that is, as uh, John Podort said so elegantly, naked breasts. That is really the answer why HBO and Showtime still have a sort of a premium quality to them is because they have nudity, uh, and they because you pay because they're they're elected. So. That's one thing. That's one thing. But the second thing that HBO tries to do is to create some kind of enormous buzz. And the second part of their model is the health club model, which is to like I join. I'm a member. I'm not really ever going to go, but I might go. So I want to keep my membership up. And that's what HBO does. They create this huge buzz. Everybody's talking about the Game of Thrones. Everybody's talking about a TV show called Girls, right? But only 600,000 people watch that horrible show, Girls. But it's part of the zeitgeist. It's in the culture. You read it in the paper and people are talking about it everywhere else. And so you think it's big. So you think, well, it's on HBO. HBO has good shows on. I may not have time to watch any of them, So, but I still want to keep my HBO. So HBO kind of wins either way. But when they, I think when they go to the obscure level on, in year four and year five of one of these complicated shows, I think people start to drop off. And I suspect that they'll have a drop-off near the end of this season. Not the premiere, but near the end of the season. And um, it'll be because people are like, ah, just exactly what John's saying. Like, ah, what am I watching here? Am I, I'm kind of behind. What am I following? I don't really know. And once that happens to an audience, it's really hard to get them back, which is why year four and year five are treacherous. Not just for um, – not just for shows like uh, on, on basic cable or premium cable, but also for one-hour dramas. I mean it's hard to keep your audiences to care about what's going on serialized uh, right. after three, four I, I'll hours. Make you, three, four I years. will make you a bet that Game of Thrones ratings continue to uh, – do not flag towards the end of the season. And I will also disagree with you about the nudity thing because um, uh, if, if, if it was pure – if nudity was all that drove things – you would have more subscriptions to Cinemax and Stars, which have vastly more nudity. I mean, I can, I don't have the metrics in front of me, but you can take my word for it um, than HBO and Showtime do. <laughs> um, and, uh, but that's why they're doing it. They're doing it to overcome HBO and Showtime. Look, I mean, if you look at a perfect example, this is the show that was on HBO a while ago called Entourage. Their lowest rated season was a season where they forgot that a lot of people watched that terrible show, which was not funny or interesting in any way. But they watched it to see a lot of girls in the, in the pool with um, – what's his name? The guy. And uh, they did a season where the girls weren't in the pool and their, their ratings dropped. And they said, OK, whatever you do next season, we want naked girls in the pool. And then that's what you saw. I, I, mean, I have to give Game of Thrones one very important uh, thumbs up, which is that – in this episode on Sunday night, there was a nude scene so completely <laughs> gratuitous that it was almost a comment on itself. Like the first nude scene is basically a woman naked from the, the top up sort of like having sex with a guy and nothing – it was unrelated to anything because then someone came and said – so-and-so wants to see you, and the guy goes and meets the other person, and then we never see the woman that he was – and we'll never again see her. So the one – I would say the one impressive aspect of it is they just don't even make a – they don't even sort of make their bones about it. It's like, okay, here comes the nude scene, and uh, that's great. Yeah, look, well, look I, 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 I know I – I'm not complaining. You. Look, it's a nude Speak. It's a show that has nude. I, I'm not complaining. I'm just if, saying I found it. Yeah. impenetrable and if i found it impenetrable having read the books i don't understand how people are going to find it are going to be able to make sense of it 
who hadn't seen it before. If you Ooh. like gratuitous nudity, yes, this next thing probably isn't for you because Audible.com, as you know, is the <laughs> leading home for audio content on the internet. And this show is brought to you by Audible.com, so you can listen to nude scenes on Audible.com. If you want to listen to it, Audible has every title pretty much with over 100,000 choices, virtually every genre. You'll find what you're looking for. You can get a free audiobook and a 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audiblepodcast.com slash glop. Uh, I'd like to recommend that people uh, take as their audio pick, as, as their Audible free book, uh, The Game of Thrones. Uh, why not uh, put John Podoritz's, uh, uh question to the test? Um, listen to them and wonder uh, if you would wouldn't prefer to watch them with the nudity. Well, also, if, if Audible it, has uh, if Audible has Boccaccio's Decameron there, which I'm trying <laughs> to find, that that actually does have nude scenes, you know, in a in you could listen to. <laughs> and also, who who has not wanted to use the phrase "listen to the rack on her"? <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of. Ass like that. That you know. <laughs> All right. Well, someone just won the won the show. Uh, <laughs> Jonah just won the show. Not a competition. Not we're all in it together. We all share in his glory. Okay. Now, it's good. So are, are we ever talking about politics? Or it's we an honor just to be I, nominated. Check out this segment. <laughs> um, so John is on uh, the the Twitter machine uh, complaining about Jonah, who's on the Twitter machine uh, praising uh, the Game of Thrones. Um, and I'm just reading that there's a whole bunch of former Obama operatives who are all on Twitter, sort of Twitter unbound. They're unleashed, uh, not just uh, um, um, Axelrod, but a bunch of the others, John Favreau, the speechwriter, and they're all coming out. They're all bare knuckles on Twitter, smashing you know various reporters and journalists and saying, you're an idiot, you're a fool. Um, uh, Ron Fournier took it, took it on the chin from John Favreau, the uh, speech former speechwriter. I mean, is Twitter the new like trash talking den? I mean, is that is that going to be acceptable? Like, what what you say on Twitter is acceptable? I think it's uh, I think it's actually ab- an absolutely uh, fantastic lesson for people who are not involved in politics to understand the true nature of politics and that is what some of what is being revealed in this really excellent piece by Dylan Byers and Politico um, and on Twitter if you follow John Favreau, John Lovett, another another uh, another speechwriter or Axelrod or um, Austin Goolsby who was the economic advisor who's very witty and others which is that they make no bones about how you know partisan they are, how tough they are, and how utterly um, you know aggressive they are uh, in their defense of their their guy and their candidate. But the notion uh, that there is you know that that somehow people who work in the White House are instantly elevated by their work in the White House, or are you know made more serious or take things more seriously. In the end, political operatives. Who most of these guys are who are political operatives are not serious people. I mean, they're serious. They had they should be taken very seriously because they they have a serious effect on the country. But uh, politics is what they're in it for, not the ideas. Politics and the uh, you know the competitive, the victory, wanting to win, wanting to beat the other side down. Um, and these guys are, are are clever and they speak in the voice of 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 this. Uh, you know, sort of the the contemporary voice of Twitter and of of the media, um, unlike a lot of the the the, the Bushies who were, you know, par- more part of a, a Republican uh, either counterculture or came from the Christian right, and therefore were more right. earnest and and less willing to be you know ironic and cutting and uh, and snotty. Um, and I think there's there's a value to this in the. Um, demystification so, of politics. Really? So you you think this is okay? Well, compared to what? I mean, it's real. It's honest. This is who they really are. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's interesting in the sense that all of this demystification serves to lower the presidency and lower, you know, Washington in the eyes and estimation of people. But then there's a real question, which is maybe it should be lowered. Maybe this is where it should right. be because maybe they don't deserve. 
to be considered as though, you know, it's they need to be taken more exalted. seriously than other people. Yeah. Jonah, what do you think? I, think there's a lot of, I haven't read the Dylan Beers thing, um, but I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think um, uh, you get the sense on Twitter that, you know, what works on Twitter is, is you have to have a personality. And the second you start having, like, a personality, um, you're less august. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's sort of like the camera doesn't lie. The Twitter doesn't lie only in the so far as that if you only tweet once a week uh, saying, here's my new article, you really don't have a presence on Twitter. And so the only way you have a presence on Twitter is by being in the people's timelines enough for them to get a sense of who you are. And so people's personalities come across and, or they're just, you know, hackish robots, you know, clearly run by someone's intern or whatever. And then they're just sort of background noise. And, um, and I, I do think, you know, Mark Stein's been on this for a very long time on a sort of related point you know that the the sort of monarchical entourage and pomp and circumstance around the presidency is really yeah. starting to become embarrassing and ridiculous and you know you see how uh you know I'm all in favor of a strong presidency and and I under, you know and I I I never really begrudged presidents for taking vacations and and all that kind of stuff but there does some seem to be something sort of too lavish about the presidency now yeah. that is rubbing against the grain of a culture that is sort of still sees itself in austerity mode. Well, you know, years ago, I think it was actually under Gerald Ford, maybe Jimmy Carter, uh, the, the, the Secret Service really had drew up the first plan to close Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the White House. And all those presidents said, under no circumstances, you can't do it. Um, you can't do you know you can't do it. Uh, even Reagan said you can't do it. Um, Bush said you can't do it, and then Clinton came along. And by that time, the idea had kind of like it became one of those ideas that everybody brings up, and it was sort of inevitable. You just had to find the right moment. And it was when they landed the plane, I think. Some guy landed a plane in the White House lawn. Yeah, and uh, that's when the Supreme Court. That's when the sorry. That's when the Secret Service um, kind of won that argument, and they closed. Pennsylvania Avenue, and th- there was something weird about that. Even, even after nine eleven, I just there is something that there is something about pushing people away from the center of power. Like you know, you're not really you can't drive past it. It's not just an ordinary house. It's weird. I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy about it. I mean, I, know, I understand all the safety arguments for it, but I still yeah, think no, I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot to that. I also think. That you know the Obama. I think it's I think it's valuable, but I think that the 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 Obamaites who are responsible for some of this change in tone uh, have done themselves a disservice. Um, I mean, they they've marshaled the forces that they needed to marshal. So they've marshaled you know John Stewart and they marshaled Twitter and they've marshaled social media and all of that. But you know. Something has been lost. Obama's uh, ability to um, rally the public through convincing argument, um, or through sort of you know the notion right. that he is the guy who sixty-five million people voted for, and he speaks in the voice of the people, has been harmed by the embrace of the much more informal, much more um, uh, less amb- smaller. Let's say just sort of it's a smaller voice, but it's not more effective. A smaller. He's on the one hand a very important political figure. You know, I, I don't just mean now. I mean potentially a world historical political figure. And on the other hand, he's somebody that John Stewart calls dude, and he doesn't wear a tie, and he he's you know he tries to shoot twenty two hoops, and he only makes two of them, and he does the you know. He stands there and says, "Give, give, uh, you know, let's give another round of applause to the Easter Bunny." There's something lowered about the presidency, and you know, maybe that's just an act, and that the the, the elevation of the presidency was itself, right? You know, a sort of a species of performance art that helped the president maintain his authority. But that said, the president could use some of that authority. He could have used it, and whoever follows him. Could use it, and it's not clear to me that you'll ever be able to get it back. On the other hand, like I say, if this is what it takes, then people really ought to know 
what it's really like there that, you know, uh, the speechwriters Favreau and Lovett, both of whom are very clever. Uh, Lovett is very funny, and he's very funny on Twitter. But these are not elevated guys, right. you know. They're right. not writing. They're not, you know, sort of like writing for the ages. They're not looking to, you know, create, you know, rhetorical categories that will survive them. They're just punchers, you know. But isn't it effective yeah. though, just to to set up the 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 uh, just to 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 set up the the image of we're cool, we're the kind of cool bullies in school, and and if you aren't writing, if you aren't cool, meaning I think this is entirely theater for the media, if you're not writing the articles we want them to be written, and you're not saying what we want you to say, we're going to make fun of you. We're not going to sort of get mad at you. You know, Marlon Fitzwater would get mad at you, but we're going we're gonna to make fun of you, and we're going to call you stupid and old and out of touch. And that is kind of what the Obama presidents, that's a big part of their media thrust, that everyone who disagrees with us is stupid and old and uncool. And it's pretty effective. I mean, Jonah, don't you I mean, I don't think they probably ever, ever, ever go after you, right? They're really not refuting arguments because, of course, there aren't any arguments being made. In the, you know, the, most of the press doesn't make an argument against what the Obama administration wants, but they really are enforcing a kind of discipline by saying, you are uncool. And of course, the one thing reporters all want to be, especially today, is cool in, in the in crowd. Yeah, I mean, I got to say, though, I, mean, I, I don't follow either of these guys on Twitter, and I, I hadn't read the piece, so I'm a little out of, uh, out of uh, sync with all of this, but. Um, you know, it, it's a funny thing. I mean, and John knows this better than I do. Is you know, for for a long time, to be a White House speechwriter was a very sort of serious thing, and um, and people who had done it had sort of had a ticket punched in a way that required them to um, take themselves a little seriously. And I think that's probably been more true on the Republican side than on the Democratic side, but it's been basically true. And what's interesting, I think, part of this has to do with this sort of new sort of revolving door where you can go to Hollywood where they expect sort of a different kind of personality than they do if you're going to set up permanent camp in Washington or New York. Um, and, but, and so these guys, you know, Favreau was this guy who had this picture where he was playing beer, comp, beer pong without his shirt on and all this kind of stuff. And I, I think as a, as a, as a more basic thing, these guys were, Bad speechwriters. I mean, I, I, I am completely um, at odds with the, the cult of Obama's speeches as if they are well-crafted yeah. or yeah. well – or even really to a I certain agree. extent well-delivered. And uh, this has been – I mean, and, and John knows the speechwriting process from the inside a little better than I do. But you know, my understanding, certainly under Reagan, but also under Papa Bush and, and, and um, under – uh, to a lesser extent under W, but like these were speechwriter. The, the speechwriters used to come out of a completely different sort of worldview and milieu, and so they would sweat over every fact that was asserted yeah. in a speech. And I am convinced that these guys are Wikipedia guys, and there have been so many easily found. Mm-hmm. Factual errors in Obama's speeches about Rutherford B. Hayes and what no, and he got the number of his the, the number of his presidency wrong in his first inaugural, which is just sort of staggering. And uh, in his his second inaugural, well, he I think was he, was he included Jefferson Davis. <laughs> um, in his second inaugural, he um, uh, he used the phrase "peace in our time." Now I've been having this conversation with a bunch of people about whether or not. This was deliberate or not, right? Did they? Did these guys know that this was Neville no. Chamberlain's signature line of the 20th century that has been sort of justifying uh, an assertive foreign policy um, for for a half a cent, more than half a century, or they, were they completely ignorant of it? But either way, the decision to have that in there was bizarre because I mean that's one of the the signature code phrases of, of the last yeah. of appeasement of the last hundred years and. And right. the idea that it just was in that speech is either a sign that his speechwriters are astoundingly ignorant or that they just don't care. But either way, there's not a speechwriter in the Clinton White House or the Bush White Houses or the Reagan White Houses, never mind the Nixon or any of those guys, <laughs> that would ever have dreamed of using that phrase. And I, I think that these guys um, 
think that they're much better speechwriters than they are because of the fawning that Obama has received. Right. And so they got this wrong market signal. And everyone had this idea, though, oh, here's this guy who sounds like he's got gravitas and is incredibly, you know, it sounds like he's so eloquent. And he, he punches above his weight in terms of the actual text. And I don't think they deserve their reputations. And plus, they're young kids, young, and young people are pretty stupid. I mean, I mean, how you start, we have started, I mean, not so much they wouldn't know who Pat Morita was or who the, <laughs> the, the, the list of people that John, John Podoris has dancing around in his head. They, they, uh, they, that, that phrase peace in our time wasn't a, wasn't a warning bell for, for somebody. It does seem strange to me. And I, but I think, look, if, if your goal is simply to enforce a level of, uh, uh, um, acquiescence and meek obedience in the press, which they get, then you don't really it doesn't really matter whether you use the phrase peace in our time. What matters is that you 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 attack anyone, even people on your own side, if they stray from the orthodoxy, which they've done. They've been really effective. That's a very interesting way to. Um, I, mean, I don't think any other president is going to have you know in the future is really going to have that kind of fat kind of pitch that they can throw. I don't, yeah, I just don't think, I don't think it's going to work. I mean, this idea that you can work the refs at this point, I, I just don't think it's going to work. Um, you know, I think this, I'll give you an example. The sequester coverage has been, yeah. um, has, has blown up in Obama's face in a way that I think has truly stunned them. And I think it's part because the mainstream press felt they had to carry this guy across the finish line and help Obama win. And once they did it, he's a lame duck and they've got to sort of atone a little bit and prove themselves. And, um, and the idea that a bunch of snot-nosed kids – I mean like Clinton administration brought in a whole bunch of snot-nosed kids who played a lot of these games too. They're, they're all know. now 60 by the way. Yeah, I know. Um, they're you see now them on older TV, than, they're all fat and old. Like, oh, they're now wow. older than Pat Morita was in Karate <laughs> Kid. <laughs> Oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and it just doesn't. You know, the press corps is sort of permanent, and I, I, you know, it may work for a little while, and it may work on some of the sort of mm-hmm. weaker members of the herd. But at the end of the day, um, you know, former Obama speechwriters matter less and less. Wait, so just to clarify, I mean, we we are in the sequester now, right? Yeah, Th- things are being sequestered. I mean that, that's actually happening. I thought that was going to be. I thought it'd be a lot worse. Well, it's it's all starting now, and and you're starting to see uh, the horror stories being sort of laid out about how kids in uh, Head Start programs in Palm Beach they canceled the bus service. So how are they supposed to get to their Head Start program? And you know, there's a guy. There was this uh, sob story about a, a a veteran who had gone to work. Uh, in a ninety thousand dollar job at the somewhere like at the National Security Agency, and you know his salary was cut twenty seven percent. So he now had, he had to go get a job at a at a fast food joint, and he's thinking about reenlisting and going to Afghanistan because he would get a signing bonus. And then in the story it says he's been divorced twice. He's going through a third divorce, and he has a two thousand and ten. Uh, BMW that uh, you know that that runs him you know five hundred dollars a month and, and his kids are so so when you get these sob stories that you often then drill into them and they're not quite as sobful as uh, as other stories uh, might be but you're going right. to be hearing more and more about this I wouldn't be so sure that that the later coverage isn't going to start turning on the and the pain and the agony and the angst of the sequester and that the early going right. line that the sequester didn't bite much and that people don't care uh, won't start turning simply because uh, they went with the, well, the sequester wasn't so bad at the beginning, then they can go with the pain of the sequester but is that good later timing? on. I mean, is that good timing? I mean, no, the, of the, course the, not. The, of course not. But But part of this is, you know, Jonah was just talking about the bad – the speech writing, the question of what the speech writing shop is like. And, you know, I think that we're seeing here a, a you know, possibly sort of historic shift away from the notion that what you what you what what a president does is convince the country to a president is in constant rallying mode of his base and of the weaker elements of his uh, coalition whom he might be able to stiff who he might be able to use as a support structure. During the course of his of his presidency, which is why 
you're hearing about this, you know, uh, this um, transmutation of his campaign into a uh, in, into an activist organization right. to help support him. And you know, I think clearly the speeches don't. You know, what what mattered in getting him reelected? Did the speeches matter? Did his speech at the convention matter? Did his you know his, certainly his debate performances didn't help him very much, and one of them hurt him very badly. What mattered was all this social media and the use of the technology to you know locate voters and to push voters who otherwise in other elections wouldn't have gone out to vote to vote. That suggests a different conception of presidential communications from the one that has attained for the last hundred years, which which would be understandable. I mean, really, the tradition mm-hmm. of presidential speechifying as a as a sort of um, political tool is a species of the radio and then to the television era. You know that if you're yeah. you're an expert on the radio era. Well, I am certainly an expert on <laughs> the radio, radio era, stars. but you know the famous the famous use of the fireside chat by by uh, by Franklin Roosevelt moved us into an an era in which you know Roosevelt and Churchill used mass communications in a way that you know that that enhanced leadership in the presidency and gave gave the country a a unifying sense. So we're sort of moving out of the mass. The you know unified mass communications era. Think about the most important speech that Obama has given in the last four or five months, which wasn't the second inaugural. It was his speech on you know on guns after Newtown. Totally ineffective. Yeah. Look where we are. He's not going to get anything. He's not getting anything. Um, so it turns out that speeches don't work for him. Well, if they don't work for him, I don't know who they're going to work for. Not that yeah. I think that. You know his speechwriters are good, and that he's a you know. Well, they did I think, go through a, for their, their first term. There was a lot of that, like, well, he's going to give a speech, and that was right. like, we're we're going to come at you with a speech, and it, it did. It always seemed to fizzle. I mean, that said, he got a lot of what he wanted, but there there does seem to be this kind of uh, deafness to a certain point. There's so much noise coming out of that White House that at a certain point you just tune it out. Yeah, um, I wrote a, I wrote a couple columns back then, um, you know trying to popularize the more cowbell thing because it was amazing if you went back and you actually just did a nexus search axelrod would always give this sort of exclusive interview where he would sort of preview their plans for the next big thing and it was always well he's going to come out with a big speech on this and their first year people forget how unbelievably overexposed obama was he was right. on i mean the, the number of magazine covers he had the number of interviews all fawning um, the number of speeches he gave, I mean, he gave um, uh, people and people always thought that he could bought into this idea that he could rally the pub- public. He gave 52, 58 speeches on health care alone his first year. He never moved the needle on public opinion. And I think this is one of the so these guys, they came in always thinking that the answer for Obama was another speech. And I think in a lot of ways, I mean, I think John's probably right about a lot of this, but. At the same time, it's hard to know right now because I think he kind of exhausted um, – he, he kind of he, he, he kind of blew his wad as it were on, on speechifying his first year. It was so unbelievably overexposed that it lost anything special to hear him speak because he was just talking constantly. Which is probably why they need to sort of enforce their message uh... – through the through the Twitter stream or the Twitter sphere, whatever they call it, uh, if I, if I could just uh, ask you this, I mean, uh, just to change the subject a little bit, um, uh, yesterday or yesterday, 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 gov- former governor of South Carolina, Mark Sanford, won the Republican primary in South Carolina to run for the Senate, and he's going to run against uh, Elizabeth Colbert Bush, so uh, Stephen Colbert's sister, and I think. That she's all already gonna. She, I think, from what I understand, she's already starting to do the, you know, um, Stephen Colbert, uh, 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 Mark Sanford doesn't have our values kind of kind of <laughs> campaign. Which, how could she not? Um, what do you? I mean, what does it take to get out of politics now? I mean, Mark Sanford, governor of South Carolina, kind of hugely embarrassing, crazy sex scandal. Not even like normal sex scandal where he's caught, uh, 
you know, in a, in a, with a bunch of his junk girl. or anything. Yeah, exactly. I mean, tweeting <laughs> his junk. But like, you know, it was a love story. It was really kind of, I mean, it was in a way it was sort of sweet because he fell in love with somebody and he went down to Argentina, I think to visit her. Or he was, uh, he was love, love struck. But on the other hand, it's kind of like, well, you know, we'll accept you if you're simply a priapic, horrible, uh, uh, rapacious old guy um, who's basically sort of a greedy pal, on, you know, and has his head screwed on straight. But if you're love struck and you do things crazily because of you falling in love with somebody, that just doesn't seem quite acceptable. But he's back now, and he could be a senator from South Carolina. House seat, Congress, House. Congress. Oh, Congress. Right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I got that wrong. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, look. I think this is an interesting, you know, test case because what we what we what we've now devolved into. Um, is a we're we're in a politically we 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 are there are two rules for two different parties. The rule is that Republicans, uh, because they are you know morally they're morally conservative parties. Republican politicians are to be held to a standard of personal behavior that Democratic politicians are not to be held to because they're hypocrites because. You know, so, you know, you can be a, dem- a demo, you know, on the one hand, the president of the United States was, you know, was having, uh, you know, was having sex in and around the Oval Office with interns. And on the other, a guy who's been married for a long time, we don't know the condition of his marriage or the state of his relationship or anything like that. Apparently, his sole offense, as far as one can tell, since he wasn't, you know, driven yeah. from office or anything like that, was telling his uh, press guy to tell a cock and bull story about where he was, that he was hiking, whereas in fact he was taking a trip <laughs> to, see, Appalachians, to see his girlfriend. But I mean, that's not much. A, first of all, it's not like he should have been at his desk. You know, he he, he abandoned his post. Was going on between Mark and Jenny Sanford and all of that is nobody's business. A dirty dime was dropped on Stan, on, on Sanford. It's up to the voters of South Carolina to decide what, where or what, you know, con- under what conditions they are or will not accept him. What I think is really, um, you know, appalling is this, again, this sort of notion that somehow um, sex scandals are really only for uh, Republicans because they are, you know, hypocritical uh, because they, they talk about, you know, morality too much. You know, Sanford, that was not Sanford's game. He's a basically a, uh, you know, a budget busting, uh, small government right. um, conservative who, you know, wore the garb of a, of a, you know, of a Christian conservative because he was a, the governor of South Carolina. By, by many accounts, a very good governor. Under other circumstances, he would have been talked about quite a lot as a presidential or vice presidential candidate in, in, in 2012. So he'll either get into the house or he won't get into the house, and it's nobody's yeah. business. That's my my view. Is it's really that that is really nobody's business. Nothing was done on the public wheel. He didn't yeah. do anything disgusting. You know, people. You know, marriages. You know, half of all marriages break up. It's a it's a weird standard to to say that. You know, what Mark Sanford did should drive him from public life. Now maybe he will be driven from public life because the voters of South Carolina in that in that district are not going to accept it. But you know that's their choice. It's not the media's choice, and it's right. not sort of Republican conservative organizations' choice. It's just that's just the way it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sympathetic to that, and I, I do think that sort of we have to update our standards on some of this stuff when one out of every two marriages ends in a divorce and all of that. And is it know. one out of two? I thought it was less than that actually when they, when they get right down to it's it. 50% of all in, in any given year, there are half as many divorces as there are marriages. Nobody knows what that statistically, yeah. it's very hard to calculate what that means as a general rule because you know, you don't know how many times people get married and all of that. So right, right, it's a, right. But um, you know, does just stipulate that the, the nature of, of the cultural and moral norms are changing and all of that. And I and I've been beating my you know my spoon on my high chair about the the way hypocrisy works in politics for a really long time, where basically liberals see, have gotten to themselves into the argument where 
Um, it is better to consistently have no standards than to inconsistently have any at all. Um, and uh, you know, the, uh, the argument you get from the left is that it, there's no there's no crime in being a glutton. Um, there's only a crime if a glutton um, doesn't preach gluttony for everybody. Um, and that's you know that's a real problem. That said, um, there's still something I don't like about our political culture where. Um, these people who are, you know, for want of a better term, at least in the old days would have called it disgraced, um, who then don't go away, who, you know, they're sort of like Richard Gere and an officer and a gentleman. I've got no place else to go. And they just, they buy their time. They try to come back into politics. Anthony Weiner, apparently, as I was just reading in the New York Post, America's greatest newspaper, um, that, uh, um, he spent what like a hundred grand on a polling firm to test the waters to see if he can still run for mayor. Um, you know, can't you know? Can't some of these people? I mean, wasn't there something to be said for the days where you know you were pelted from the public stage, or or, <laughs> yeah. or at least if you were if you if you had a scandal, the half life for before you could come back was a little longer, you know, I yeah. mean, like now it's like 18 months and it's like, Oh, that's old news. Let's come on, you know, come on back. And I, I that I find, you know, regardless of the merits of any sp- particular scandal, sort of unpleasant, but it's a reality. I mean, look, the simple circumstances that we live in are that, you know, we live in a culture that, that, you know, that, that elevates, to you know, celebrity and worshipful standing, you know, mm-hmm. performers who who you know have the morals of guinea pigs. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's that sort of thing where somebody in Hollywood is married for seven years and gets a divorce, and people say, "Well, it was a pretty successful marriage." I mean, it lasted for <laughs> seven years. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's right. no joke. That is, yeah. no yeah. joke. do say true. that in People Magazine when you you know it's like, or they you know we're we're friends. Like, it was great. Yeah, exactly right. It's like it's, in Seinfeld where he says, "Yeah, three years is a long time to be married." Yeah. <laughs> no, so so we live in the world that you know we live in the world that we live in, and and pretending otherwise, uh, the, you know, pretending otherwise is a is a is a is sort of a, a fool's errand. That's that's part of the that's part of the problem here. And if 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 uh, if conservatives in particular um, insist on on holding, um, you know, their 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 politicians to a sort of a, a, a moral, a level of a personal moral, or right. per, private moral standard um, that you know that other politicians are not held to, then they're going to reap the whirlwind because people don't care about this anymore. I, I you know, it would be better if they did. We're going to reap the consequences that they don't. But you know, that's that's life. Yeah, I did it work out with this woman in for Argentina. I actually don't know yeah, that. Yeah, she was on stage with him on 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 Yeah, so it's kind of a love story. It's a love story. It, it, by the way, it really is a love story. That's yeah. the complicated aspect of this. He wasn't seeing hookers. He wasn't, you know, in a in a men's room stall widening his stance. <laughs> he, you know, he had he was married to a long time for a woman that apparently he fell out of love with and he fell in love with somebody else and he went to visit her. He was having and yeah, he's an adulterer. Yeah, it's having an adulterous affair. So judge, but I mean, this is actually where you get into that weird judge not lest you be judged. I think it's perfectly acceptable to say you can judge that the president is uh, sleep is you know is making use of an intern uh, you know during the government shutdown when he is you know fifty one and she is twenty three, um, and. Uh, in a you know in an appalling fashion that would at, uh, and under under other circumstances you know be grounds for your dismissal. Yeah, exactly and right. That another, was exactly and right. It's another to say you know judge somebody. Uh, look, I haven't had an adulterous affair, and I'm not. But you know, I've no one knows people who have. And you know, life is very complicated, and complicated things happen. Um. I would like I, – I, I agree and I think that's exactly right and I and I um, and then we are coming up to the top of the hour so we probably should wrap it up. I would like to just say before we go that I think um, – I think, I'm not sure that Monica Lewinsky's 40 years old now. Well, she's younger than <laughs> Pat Morita. She's younger <laughs> than Pat Morita. So at least she's I got that she's going 40, for her. No, she'll, I know she'll be forty in July. 
By the way, this is this is this is an important thing to bring. I don't know anything about her or her life or anything like that, but is there any question that her life was ruined? Her life was ruined. Bill Clinton ruined her life. He ruined her life and I hope he suffers and I hope that the book that she writes that is supposed to come out next year or the year after uh, causes people to reevaluate their feel their their right. apparently extremely positive feelings about him because he you, in a utilitarian fashion, as he had done with other women, took this you know vulnerable person over whom he had almost absolute power and ruined her life. And cared nothing. I mean, and truly cared nothing about her. I mean, yeah, there were times where he completely forgot her name. Uh, you know, so it's not it's not a Mark Sanford story. <laughs> no, <laughs> he, he was not. He was not chasing her into malls. I love you. I love you. Uh, although that is there been there have been like nine screenplays written about a president who does exactly that. Um, uh, it, it does. It, <laughs> it does seem I just I'm still stuck on the fact that she's 40. I can't yeah. get past that. That seems that seems I guess it's right. Right. She's got to. But in my mind, she's always an intern. I guess people, everybody gets old. That's what happens. Even the hip nip. But, uh, but it's still, it's still. You're right. There's a book coming out. An adult woman reflecting on her life 20 years ago is going to write a book, and that book is going to be hard for people to read. I think, especially people, as you say, John, who uh, who have, uh, have have forgotten just what exactly it was that caused that big scandal. Well, and also, we just to tie this all up. Um, when it comes out, you will be able to get it on Audible, and you'll be able to listen to the gratuitous nudity. <laughs> you will be able to listen to gratuitous nudity on Audible, and I, probably in her. But Audible. I will now predict that because it is about a beloved Democratic politician, HBO will not make a fact-based movie about it, starring Julianne Moore. But maybe Cinemax. There will be no HBO movie <laughs> yeah. about Monica and Bill because HBO is in the tank. Oh, totally. Yeah. And as long as long as there is a as long as there is a Republican to to to, to slander, uh, they will never go after their own. No, they will find some obscure Republican congressman who was uh, in there for two years. And they'll make a nine-part miniseries of his. Larry Craig, the series. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right, right. It'll the be like Todd the uh, story. <laughs> exactly. Right. It'll be the, the Larry, Clay, Larry Craig story. Uh, it'll, it'll, the same people who did the – who during the Liberace movie will do it. Um, Boy, that looks good. Have you seen the trailer? It does look good, doesn't it? It, it does look re- good. Well, look, Steven Soderbergh is a wonderful director. and But, you know, if you had told me – that of all people on earth, Michael Douglas would play <laughs> Michael Douglas, who was famous for uh, going into rehab for you know sex, sex addiction and not you know multifarious sex addiction, but you know sex addiction with women. He likes the um, ladies, yeah, very much so. Yes, that he Michael that Douglas he would end up playing. But I thought yes, Michael Douglas <laughs> didn't Michael Douglas have like crazy throat cancer? Yeah, doesn't he sound like Pedoritz now? No, no, he's uh, he's in recovery, and Matt Damon plays uh, the longtime boyfriend. Yeah, so it the, looks the trailer great. looks great. It does look really good. Um, actually, you know, originally I think actually uh, Alec Baldwin was supposed to play that part, who would also have been who would also have been great. But I don't know yeah. if he has the vulnerability. I'm just bummed that Michael Bay didn't get to direct. Awesome. <laughs> well, there, there, there is a lot of CGI, I think, and some explosions. <laughs> I would like to point out. I would like to point out another major change in American society, which is that in the 1950s, my grandmother surely thought the following: that that Liberace was a very nice young man, and that you know one day uh, he would find a really good, you know, all he needed was a really good woman, and everything would be fine. Yes, and uh, in the 60s. Uh, in the show Bewitched, when they wanted to ca- when they wanted to uh, to cast the Bewitched swinging bachelor womanizing brother, they went to Paul Lynn, <laughs> uh, and he was not acting; he was being Paul Lynn, and everybody thought, "Oh, wow, he's very hip. He must get lots of ladies." So, um, yes, things do change. Uh, it does change for us. It's a little bit past the hour, um, fellas. Uh, uh, Jonah, are are you appearing anywhere in the future? 
Um, I am. I'm appearing at the Peak Freedom Forum in Colorado Springs. Uh, Google it. You'll find the dates and details. Tickets are still available. Um, And the paperback edition of Tyranny Clichés comes out April 30th. Wow. Okay. And John, you're at the Giggle Lounge. I actually have an I have an appearance. What? I actually oh, have really? an appearance mention, um, and it's not at uh, at the Chuckles in Syosset, um, <laughs> which is ordinarily where you would find me. Yeah. Um, uh, next uh, week, Tuesday, uh, April 9th, I will be appearing uh, uh, on a panel at the 92nd Street Y in New York on. Uh, dealing with the 100th anniversary of the Anti-Defamation League um, and, uh, you know, the role of uh, global anti-Semitism and uh, all kinds of fun stuff like that. Okay, not to hog it, but uh, since Hillsdale has been a sponsor of the show, I should also note that on April 16th, I will be at Hillsdale on a panel about conservatism and popular culture. Um, and that Peak Freedom Foundation thing is on April 20th in Colorado Springs. Oh, yeah. Well, on April 23rd, I will be at the Giggles <laughs> in, Ni- in West Nyack, New York. And on April 16th, I'll be shooting a pilot for, uh, for the popular culture. So there you go. That's, that's What is uh, it? It's another thing I'm doing for TBS, pilot set in the Home Depot. Ah, the pilot in the Home Depot. Yeah. There've been a couple Look, of movies set in Home Depots of late, haven't there? Uh, I think so, but we're doing a pilot. We're actually building a Home Depot on the soundstage. We're like making it pretty big, so it's um, it'll be kind of weird. Just, it's gonna look weird. Just try to keep your star from getting, you know, his job uh, broken. Oh God, you're right. You're right. Well, fellas, it's been a lot of fun. It has. And I guess uh, so. John, you sound good. You sound like you're coming back. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm. You know, really, it's the revivifying air of of your company that has that has that has cured my 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 illness, and I hope for all who are listening, this has is Uh-oh. as medicinal for you as it is for me. It's medicinal. Maybe uh, we can just call the show TTBD, which is like title to be determined. Just leave yeah, it there like you go. Forever. TTBD. I think that's better than glop. I think glop is good. Glop all is right. memorable. <laughs> All right, Glop is memorable. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you, John and Jonah, for joining me. Um, if you are listening to this and you are now wondering whether it's over or not, it's not over until you go to ricochet.com. Check out our podcast. Check out the conversations. Check out the contributors. Become a member today. Don't put it off. We, uh, we do need you to join. Uh, thank you for listening. Fellas, uh, next time. Johnny Yoon forever. <laughs> <laughs> Keep hope alive. <laughs> Try to be fast Cause you're only a man And a man's got to learn to take it Try to believe Though the going gets rough That you gotta hang tough to make it History repeats itself Try and you succeed Never doubt that you're the one And you can have your dream You're the best around Nothing's gonna ever keep you down You're the best around Ricochet. Join the conversation. Standing out in the crowd with the odds in the game fight. Try your best to win.